Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, what I'd like you to do is turn to the book of Revelation. We will be talking about Israel as the whole book of Revelation from chapters probably 6 to 19 primarily refer to the nation of Israel and the issues that are going on, not only with her, but the uh, Gentiles living that during that period of time. We're going to be looking at Revelation 10, and the, and the title of today's message is The Bittersweetness of Pain, and primarily dealing with the bittersweetness that's going to happen to Israel and the bittersweetness that will happen to the entire world during this period of time. And just since we're talking about the topic of pain, it's important to understand, this is where we get our application from, but it's important to understand that everybody is dealing with some type of pain, either now or they've had and, or they're getting ready to, and a lot of people are dealing with some type of pain in their life. It could be relational pain, health pain, emotional pain, distress, whatever that might be. And one of our things about being a Christian is we have to discern whether the pain that we're having is good pain or bad pain. And that's what we're going to look at today in the text. Good pain, like in exercising, you know, when you go into the gym and you haven't exercised for a while, you're typically sore. And after you've exercised, that's a sign that you did actually good things, that you broke down your muscles, you expanded them, you worked them out, and soreness is a good pain. But if you went to the gym and you felt something tear in your knee or you felt something tear in your shoulder or something, that's actually a bad pain, and you would know the difference. Well, spiritually, that's what we have to know as Christians. What kind of pain am I dealing with? And what we understand is bad pain typically stems from our character flaws. It stems from avoiding good pain. And so we, we cause ourselves bad pain, like wrong decisions because of our character flaws and regret and pain from being lazy because we got fired or pain from not grieving properly, pain from wounds and trauma and things of that nature, pain from our history. Those a lot of times are bad pains and they have to be dealt with. Then there's pains that could either go good or bad that happen in our lives. And you might be in, in the middle of that right now. If you're having physical pain because of health reasons, that can go one of two ways. You could either take that in a negative way, in a bad way, or you can try to see the redemptive value out of the physical pain. If you have relational pain, loss of a relationship, loss of other things in relationships, again, it comes down to how you react to that pain emotional pain such as grief. A lot of people don't know how to handle grief. And it, grief, believe it or not, is a pain, but it's a good pain. But if that pain is avoided, you'll suffer other bad pain by avoiding the good pain. I know it sounds weird and a tongue twister, but that's what can happen. Good pain, and let me just put this out there so you can understand before we get into the text. Good pain is redemptive. There's a bittersweetness attached to good pain, spiritual pain, and there's typically a death associated to it, like something will have to die, like a bad part of our character will have to die, and then God will resurrect a good character out of that. So typically, good redemptive pain 
is in the process of dying and resurrecting to a new life in Christ. And so a lot of times good pain is coming from persecution. Good pain comes from disciplining pain of God, suffering for the Lord, suffering for Jesus, or even godly sorrow produces good pain for us to change. So pain is necessary. You just have to understand what pain am I dealing with and can I choose good or bad pain? Okay, all that to say, let me show you an example of of what Jesus was talking about as far as good pain is concerned. This is going to bode well for when we get into the tribulation now. As an example of good pain, here's what Jesus said. He goes, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, that's discipleship, not salvation. He's talking about discipleship in the text. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Taking up the cross requires pain. It's a shame pain of identity with Messiah. And the shame that accompanies with that is painful for the individual. Ah, but this pain is redemptive if you do take up your cross. How so? It's redemptive in the fact that this, forever who desires to save his life, his old life, will lose it. But whoever loses his old life, for my sake, will find it. The new life, he's talking about the life in Christ, the abundant life. So the idea, he says, if you want to follow me in discipleship, you have to die to your old life. And in dying to your old life, you'll get a new life, a new life in Christ. That doesn't come without pain. Because the idea is a reference to the cross, that you're going to suffer some type of pain in getting that to the next step. Okay, putting that out there and to understand good pain, bad pain, redemptive pain, whatnot. Now we go into the text and the context to understand what we're dealing with. John is going to be given a little scroll to eat. And the scroll is bittersweet as he eats it. And you'll see this in the text. It's a bittersweet because there's pain associated to it. Pain not only given to the world, but pain given primarily to Israel during the tribulation. But that pain is redemptive. That's why there's a bitter sweetness to it. The bitterness is the pain that it's going to cause, and the sweetness is what's going to come out of it. And that's how a lot of times when we read the Bible, there's a bittersweet aspect to the Bible. And so you're going to see John have this example of a bittersweet moment in his life, and it's primarily due to what's going to occur in the tribulation, primarily to Israel and what they have to go through in order to get to the right side. For instance, Israel is in current rejection of Messiah as we speak. And there's a remnant that's believed in Messiah, but as a nation as a whole, they don't believe in Messiah. So one of the main reasons for the tribulation period is to give Jacob trouble. So much trouble so much distress, so much pain that it makes Israel wake up to Jesus and finally realize they need their Savior, their Messiah. And that's what the whole point of the tribulation. So there's a bittersweet aspect. We want Israel to come to faith in Christ, right? We all would support that. But God is saying, I have to inflict pain on them to do it. And if you think about it, that's no different than what we see people in our, in our family and in our lives. Sometimes the people in our family have to hit rock bottom and be flat on their back to wake up to what's going on. Some people are praying for their own adult children, their own family members, their spouses or whatnot. God, do anything you can to wake them up. 
And that's an appropriate prayer. And guess what will happen? God will have to inflict pain on them in some form or fashion. But it will be a good pain, not a bad pain, a redemptive pain. Now, knowing that caveat going into this text, when you start seeing these trumpet judgments and the seal judgments, understand that these are judgments, but they are judgments inflicting good pain. Not bad, because the judgments are to cause humanity to wake up, to cause Israel to wake up, and eventually dispose of evil so that we can get to the sweetness, which is the kingdom. That's the whole point. So with that context, that setting, let's enter into that text in chapter 10 and watch the drama play out. Verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now, these are, you're going to get a series of Jewish remezes, hints pointing back to remember something, remember something. Anytime you see remezes, it's, called, it's, it's a Hebraic way of saying remember something. The fact that the angel is coming down out of heaven for judgment is reminiscent of what you should have saw in the Old Testament. Anytime God came to judge humanity for whatever the text will say, and God came down from heaven. Now, if you go back into your Old Testament, you'll see this at the Tower of Babel, that let us go down. It'll say, let us go down. At Sodom and Gomorrah, he told Abraham, I will go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. When he talked to Moses about Pharaoh and Egypt, I will come down and deliver Israel. And then you see even situations on Mount Sinai when he came down to Mount Sinai to give his law. And then you'll you'll see a scene that God will come down to his temple when Solomon made his temple. And then in the Messiah's life, Jesus will continue to utter the same terms. And he'll say things like this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And he'll tell the Pharisees, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And so Jesus comes down to fulfill the law and then for a judgment to happen. But the judgment would happen to him, right, on the cross. So anytime you see an angel or any phrase coming down, it's one of two things. It's God coming down in judgment, and since it includes Mount Sinai, It's judgment for not keeping the law. Okay? Now, when you see Jesus come down in the first coming, he comes down to keep the law so that you and I, we don't keep it. And then for judgment, he took our judgment on a cross. So you can face God in one of two ways. You can face him on your own and you trying to keep his law, and that ends up in you being judged. Or you can accept Messiah who kept your law and let him be judged for you. It's one of two options. But the idea of coming down from heaven has to do with judgment for not keeping the law. And that's what you see with the angel. Now, we go to the next remez. And notice it's cl- he's clothed with a cloud. This angel is clothed with a cloud. And every time you see a cloud, it's usually associated to God's Shekinah cloud, the glory cloud that God envelops himself in. And it's associated to judgment. If you go back to Noah's flood, 
and the promise that he made after the flood, the rainbow appeared in a cloud. And so Mount Sinai, a cloud came on Mount Sinai. A cloud came in the temple. Anytime judgment would happen, judgment would come out of a cloud at the ascension and at Jesus' return, a cloud envelops him. It's the Shekinah, but it's associated typically to judgment from God, directly from God. Then notice it's, he has a rainbow, and a rainbow was on his head. So it's kind of like a crown type of thing. That should easily be picked up by you. By Anytime you see a rainbow, it's a, ref, a reference to the judgment of Noah, of Noah's flood, right? And so you, it hearkens you back to that period of time. What do you mean? Well, it was a promise that there was mercy in the judgment, that something good was going to come out of the judgment. And basically it did. Humanity was restarted again through Noah. And so what, what God is saying is, I'm going to judge, but there's going to be good that comes out of it. That's the message. And notice it says his face was like the sun. That's another remez. And then notice there's this John is just throwing all these Hebraic understandings into the text. The face like the sun is a reference to Malachi 4.2. The son of righteousness, talking about the Messiah, the son of righteousness is that, the, that one day out of the travail of judgment, the Messiah will appear, do the judgment, and vindicate his people, and then start a new day called the millennium or the kingdom age. And so it, it, Jesus is referred to as the son, S-U-N, of righteousness. He rises in the morning to bring a new day out of the judgment. So that's what that's all talking about. And then it goes, notice, and his feet were like pillars of fire. Again, that should instantly cause you to think, where have I seen a pillar before? In the Old Testament, what is, that a, what is a pillar? What, a pillar of fire, a pillar of fire. Both legs are, are pillars of fire. Well, the idea of his legs or his feet emphasize firmness or stability, but notice the f- his legs are fire and pillars at the same time. That's Moses in the desert with God. Remember, God appeared as a pillar of fire at night and then clouds during the day. So if you think about it, what is God saying? There's messages in these, these, these aspects of the angel. The message is, I'm going to guide the Hebrews. I'm going to guide Israel through this period of time, as I did with Moses in the desert, and he protected and provided for Israel at that period of time. So the message is, yes, it's judgment, but I'm going to take care of my nation Israel through this, as I did in the desert with them. And we all know, if you've studied eschatology or end times, that Israel will be given a place in the desert, Petra, where she'll be taken care of for three and a half years. God will provide the manna and, and water once again for them, and he will provide for them and protect them from the Antichrist for three and a half years. So God has sent a message through the angel of saying, remember the pillar, how I provided for your ancestors, I will provide again for you. Now let's get to the little book. So those are all the Jewish hints. In verse 2, he says, And he had a little book, or a little scroll, it's smaller in the idea, open in his hand. And the fact that the book has already been opened is indicated by the Greek. It's already been opened. Now, just to show you kind of a, an idea, it's a little scroll. It's not a giant scroll, but there's information written on there, and it's explained in the text. I'll come back to this, but this is what it is. And, and I'm going to explain this later in the sermon. 
This little scroll represents what's called the mystery of God to destroy two satanic mysteries. It is the mystery of God to destroy two satanic mysteries. Now, hold your hats for a moment for that. But mystery is not this idea of a cultic, Babylonian mystery cult type of mentality. When I say mystery, you'll see mystery in the biblical text. What it means is this, that things that the Old Testament prophets knew, they might have known in general. They knew about the tribulation period, but they didn't know how long it would be. They didn't know all the particulars of it and and things of that nature. And then as progressive revelation comes, then you have Daniel exposing it. It's a seventh week. And then they talk about judgments, but they won't get specific. So they had a general view. But then when you get into New Testament, the New Testament then unveils what was a mystery in the Old Testament and says, it's like this. It's not just simply a day. It's seven years And there's a series of judgments behind it. So in the New Testament, we have the mysteries unveiled that wasn't talked about in the Old Testament. And so we'll talk more about that. But that's in general what's on this little scroll. So anyway, go back to the angel and what he's doing. He says, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So this angel comes to earth and plants himself between the sea and the land, indicating that the judgment is going to be worldwide. It's not going to be over a particular piece of land. It's going to be cataclysmic and global. There's also a hint. It's symbolic as well. The fact that it's over the earth and over the sea represents the earth representing Jew and the sea representing the Gentiles. So not only is it an entire judgment on creation, but it's an entire judgment on all of humanity, Jew and Gentile. And then he goes... In verse 3, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. The idea of any time you see a lion, it's immediate thought of the lion of the tribe of Judah. That this judgment is coming from the Messiah. Again, remember in chapter 6 of Revelation, it is the wrath of the Lamb. It's the wrath of the Messiah. He is the one instituting these judgments. They're straight from Jesus. And so the reference is, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's now in his king position. Now, what do you mean by that? Messiah operates in three offices. When he did the first coming, when he came first in the Gospels, that was him operating in the prophet office. And he would declare that this is going to go down, right? And he made a lot of prophecies. He was operating in the prophecy, uh, prophet office. The night before he's crucified, he goes into his high priest office. And he got, in John 17, he gives his high priestly prayer. And from that point on, he is acting as a priest as he offers himself as a sacrifice. And now acts, in heaven, he acts as our high priest. But in the judgment scenes in Revelation and then in the second coming, he starts operating in his king office, which is part of being of the tribe of Judah, the lion, the lion aspect, not the lamb. He's the lion aspect now. And so that's why you see this angel roaring like a lion. And then we continue on. He goes, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Seven thunders is a reference to 
uh, Psalm 29. It's a reference to God's voice, seven being the symbol of perfection, and it represents God's thundering voice as he issues judgment. Anytime you hear thunder in the Bible and you read about it, it's referring to his voice. When people heard God speak about Jesus, remember, he he would say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Unbelievers heard thunder. They didn't hear the actual articulation of the words, but they heard something like thunder. So you see in this this passage, it is God speaking. Okay, what does he speak? Well, let's look in verse 4. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices... I was about to write. So John's going to record this. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. So John sees it and hears it and he's getting ready to write and God seals it up. I don't want it spoken. Now there's conjecture on my part and on part of prophecy experts and, and they study this, that this is information that John saw and was going to record, but it's going to be saved for later. And just like when Daniel was seeing prophecy in his book, he was told, seal it up. So Daniel didn't say all that he saw, because you know why? John would come and unveil what Daniel saw. So you you have the, the New Testament fulfillment in John revealing it. And what did Daniel see? He saw the book of Revelation, but he was permitted not to talk about it. Just like the Apostle Paul. He went to heaven and he comes back and he says, what I saw, I'm not permitted to say. Well, the same thing happens to John. Now, here's the conjecture. And and I think it's a pretty good theory. The conjecture is there's more information to be given to the tribulation saints and it will be given what the seven thunders uttered, the voices of God, but it will be given to the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, in the tribulation. Now, we'll talk about the two witnesses in, in the upcoming weeks and who are they and what do they do. But God is going to send two witnesses for Israel and the rest of the world, and these two witnesses cannot be touched. And they're to prophesy for three and a half years of the, the, of the tribulation. The conjecture by prophecy experts is that this thing that was sealed of the seven thunders will be given to the two witnesses to give out at that particular time. And that makes the most sense. If God would utter something and says, seal it up, the pattern is he's going to reveal it at a later date. What this judgment includes, I don't know. I can tell you it only gets worse, so it's really bad. But why does God do that? Why didn't he just state it there? Because it's just like he told the disciples, I have much to tell you, but you're not ready. And I think if you use that principle, God is saying, even in the book of Revelation that we're going through, which is is very mature material for people, very mature. And so if you're catching on to what's going on, kudos to you, man, you're, you're tracking. That's great. It's a sign of maturity on your part. But there's something in there that is beyond us. There's something in there that he doesn't want us to know because I have much to tell you, but you can't understand it. It's that bad. And the only ones that will understand it are those living during that time period 
will, will understand and grasp the significance of that unveiled prophecy. Interesting enough, that same principle is seen in Daniel chapter 12, when he says, in the end, knowledge will increase. And a lot of people read that and say, yeah, knowledge will increase, just general knowledge, you know, like math and science and, and engineering and medical. And that's not what that phrase is talking about. In Daniel, when it says, the knowledge... That knowledge is referring to prophecy. That, in essence, what Daniel is saying is that when the end times come about, the generation of believers that live closest to those time periods will be the ones who actually get it. They start making sense of things. So think about this. If you and I lived in the 1500s or 1000 A.D., when the text says about the two witnesses that they're killed and all the world sees them, how would we understand that in 1500? Well, definitely today now you could understand it because why? Of technology, TV, YouTube. It says all the world will see their dead bodies laying in the streets of Jerusalem. Now you and I know because of technology how that could be possible. Or let me jump to Revelation 13. The Antichrist is able to track everybody on the planet and they're buying and selling. If I lived in 1000 AD, how would I make sense of that? But today, I definitely know how that can happen, right? We get that. So the principle is whatever is uttered among the seven thunders, which, which is God-given revelation... It is something that that future generation only knows about and can make sense out of. Otherwise, if that was given to us, it would go right over our head. The most expert of prophecy students still couldn't figure it out. That's the point. And so it's reserved for that future generation. You must understand what the book of Revelation is. It is a survival manual for the the believers in the future, Jew or Gentile, it is a survival manual. That's what it's doing for them. So whatever he gives them is going to be a way of surviving the cataclysmic judgments. Nonetheless, let's go back to the text. Verse 5, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, and there should be delay no longer. So he's swearing an oath in the name of Yahweh, of the Creator. And notice that's important to understand. He's swearing an oath in the name of the Creator because the Creator has the right to do this to the planet and to people. Why is this important? Because God is going to inflict pain on humanity, pain that humanity has never, ever seen before. And it's trying to tell you and I, he has the right to do this as creator. As creator, when he created the angels and he created us, he moved into a role called he's sovereign. Now, that's misunderstood a lot of times in the Reformed and Calvinistic camps. When you use the word sovereign, it means the right to rule. If you have no creatures, no creation, you're not sovereign over anybody. You have to be sovereign over creatures. 
So when he created the angels, he entered into that role of sovereignty. And when he created us, he entered into that role of sovereignty. Okay, what does that mean? That means God has the right to do what he wants to do according to his nature. And if he's saying this, that I must send these awful judgments to humanity for redemptive purposes, then he has every right to do it. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because I can tell you this, the world does not know how to interpret pain correctly. Most people sometimes when they're put on their backs or they have a tragedy in their life, do not turn to God. They have a death in the family and you think a death would wake them up. It doesn't. They just go to their own coping mechanisms and still roll through life as if nothing has happened. So a lot of times the pain God is inflicting, he says, I have the right to do this and I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to wake you up and I have the right to do this to my creatures. But a lot of times people who have pain inflicted on them, they don't see it as good pain. They see it as bad and they turn on God. And they get mad at him and angry at him and accuse him of being unjust and unfair. And what the angel is saying is he's fair and just and he's doing this for a good reason. So it takes some faith in that to understand, especially when you see judgments start just coming out of heaven, just pounding the earth. Go back to the text and join me in verse 7. It says, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound... The mystery of God would be finished. Okay, now here's where we're going to explain the little scroll. Now, if you can understand this, and it's not hard to understand, you're going to be put into a camp called the mature. Because only mature believers get this. Because only mature believers get mysteries, godly mysteries. What do you mean? There are eight mysteries in the New Testament. These were things that were hidden, hidden from the Old Testament believers and are revealed in the New Testament. For instance, the church was a mystery. They had no clue about the church age and the church itself, the body of Christ. That was a mystery. The rapture was a mystery that was not talked about. So Paul will say, I tell you a mystery, things of that nature, and the resurrection associated with the rapture. Okay, so those are kind of things that are, were flushed out. Well, there's eight of them, and there's two satanic mysteries as well that were not talked about in the Old Testament. Okay, so with that knowledge, what God is saying is that there's a mystery now being revealed right now in the book of Revelation, in the New Testament, that tells you and I how God will destroy evil wickedness, and the kingdom of Satan. Now, they knew in the Old Testament that the day of the Lord would happen and it would vanquish evil, but they didn't know how it would happen. That's what we have now. That's what we're privy to, and this takes a a, a bit of maturity. Okay. They knew about Satan in the Old Testament. They knew he opposed God. They knew that that was the arch enemy of God, and he had taken a third of the angels with him, so to speak, and rebelled against him. Okay, but it never specified what Satan's program was. They knew he's there. He knew he had a d- demonic hosts with him, but they didn't know the program. 
Well, let me show you the two satanic mysteries revealed in the New Testament that God is saying I'm going to dispose of through what I'm getting ready to do. The first one, the first satanic mystery, Mystery Babylon. They knew about Babylon. They knew that she was the origin of all false religions, but they didn't understand what she would do in the end times. And so what we have on the screen is new information from the New Testament that unveils a mystery. The mystery is this, that Babylon would develop into a one-world religion. They didn't know that in the Old Testament. They knew she existed, but didn't understand it would take it over the entire world. Right now, you and I are living in a period of time where we're watching the development of the one-world religion. And you know what her hallmarks are. All paths are equal to God. Her mantras are tolerance, multiculturalism, diversity, things of that nature. But we're not tolerant towards Christians and Jews. That's the idea. But anyway, it's developing in front of our very eyes. And will rule the world religiously for the first half of the tribulation. They didn't know that. That it would be based in Babylon, in Iraq, where Babylon started. And it would be supported by the governments of the day. They didn't know that either. So the whore of Babylon rides the beast is the idea that she's supported by the governments of the day. Believe it or not, the governments of this world are not going to go secular. They're going to go Babylonian. They're going to go to this false religion. All the governments, the EU, everybody will go to this whore of Babylon, a false religious system. She's going to be the glue that keeps the governments together during the last days. And it will be the primary persecutor of believers during the first half of the tribulation. They didn't know that. That's called the first satanic mystery that God revealed. If you understand this, good for you, because now that shows you you're mature. Because you know why? If you go outside of our church and you go to 70% of the churches in America today, they have no idea about that. And all that's coming from Scripture. But they don't talk about the horror of Babylon. People don't know the formation of the one world government. They're completely clueless. And I'm not talking about secular people. I'm talking about believers. If you ask them, hey, tell me about the mystery Babylon. What do you think it is? Huh? Mystery Babylon? What are you talking about? That's in the Old Testament. That happened to Tower of Babel? That's what you're talking about? No, no, no. I'm talking about currently what's going on right now. They can't tell you. Which shows you where they're at in their Christianity. They're immature. Second satanic mystery, the mystery of lawlessness and the lawless one. Now, they knew about the Antichrist in the Old Testament. They knew about the satanic opposition to God, but they didn't have the details of it. Well, what we see from the New Testament is that Satan has his program of lawlessness already in effect, and it's in opposition to God's law. They had no clue about that, that Satan was currently working right now in a program, that he actually has a program. And that program's called lawlessness. That doesn't mean anarchy. That's not what it's talking about. Lawlessness means that he opposes the laws of God. If we support life, he supports death. Right? It's the, it's the opposite of what God says. God says, this is right. Satan will say, no, that's, that's wrong. If we say, this behavior is wrong, Satan will say, no, that behavior is right. It's an alternative lifestyle. You see how the game is played? Guys, if you don't see the system of lawlessness, then you'll be blind to it. And I know you don't because you see it in our own culture. Everybody is starting to say that wrong is right, 
right? That, that's what's going on. Transgenderism, homosexuality, marriage, stuff like that. That's lawlessness. Lawlessness. We see that forming. It's in all culture. It's in the schools. It's in the universities. Lawlessness. Now, part of it is that it counterfeits God's program. And that it actually mimics the way God does things. God, Satan doesn't create things. Only God creates things. So what Satan does is he counterfeits them and mimics them. So what does he mimic? The first thing he mimics is a demonic gospel. A demonic gospel. What do you mean? A gospel based on works. It might have a Jesus in it, some type of Jesus, but this Jesus won't be a savior. He'll just be a way shower, an example, a good role model. But typically in this lawless system that will call itself Christianity or whatever, it'll be a works-based salvation. Like you work for your salvation. That's why we're so concerned with the social gospel that's invading a lot of churches and a lot of do-gooding because it's part of this demonic program of working your way to heaven under the guise of being a believer in God or Christ. And it's not. It's a demonic gospel. Then it counterfeits the Trinity. So Satan counterfeits the Trinity. How so? Satan will play the role of the Father. The Antichrist will play the role of the Son. And the false prophet will play the role of the Holy Spirit. That's the formation of the Satanic Trinity. And Satan is working on doing that. By the way, Antichrist will mimic many of the things Jesus did. He will mimic a virginal birth. How so? Because he's the seed of Satan. Yeah, I know it's Sunday morning, but Satan will eventually cohabitate with a Roman Gentile woman and produce his son. It will be a counterfeit of the virginal birth, but it's not a virginal. He was the one who sired the Antichrist. The Antichrist will suffer a mortal wound and die and be resurrected by Satan. Satan God will allow this to happen. And Satan will, will bring him back to life. He counterfeits a, a counterfeit resurrection. And it's the whole nine yards. Jesus did miracles. So will the Antichrist. Antichrist means instead of Christ. He takes the place of Christ. He is going to be the world's Messiah. And he's going to say he's the new Jesus. That he's the real one. Not the one in history. That he's the real one. He counterfeits. It's a satanic program that is in effect as we speak. The lawless program will produce the coming of the lawless one. So all, the, all this lawlessness you see in our society is getting ready to produce the Antichrist. Satan intends to bring the world, the lawless one. The Antichrist will not come in power in a lawful manner. Believe it or not, someone like Hitler, he came to power lawfully, believe it or not. They voted him in. Antichrist will not be voted in. He will come unlawfully. And that's the hallmark of the satanic program. So he'll seize power unlawfully. At this point, the present time, a restraint on lawlessness and the lawless one is, is put in effect right now from emerging. But one day the restraint will stop and the Antichrist will be brought to power by Satan himself. Furthermore, the worship of the Antichrist will replace the worship of Mystery Babylon. This was not talked about in the Old Testament, now in the New. Let's go back to the previous slide. Notice that there's a restraint as we speak. There's a restraint on the Antichrist emerging. 
from lawlessness getting completely out of control. Do you know what the restraint is? If you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you will find that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. And he's, the Holy Spirit is restraining the lawless system and the lawless one through the church. The fact that you and I are here, there serves a purpose and a reason. You and I, believe it or not, the Holy Spirit is working through us in our culture to keep the Antichrist back. But guess what? When the minute we hear the, the trumpet sound and he says, come up here, and the church is removed, the, the true church is removed out of this planet, the Holy Spirit will stop restraining. He will still be active in salvation, but he will stop the restraint and lawlessness will go berserk. And then the Antichrist will come on the scene. That's what they didn't know in the Old Testament. Again, if you can understand that and you're sitting and tracking her along with me, you have just been revealed the two satanic ministries from the New Testament. And if you understand that, you are, you're what the Scriptures consider mature. But guess what? If I take that information out to 70% of the churches in America, guess how they'll look at me? Like a calf at a new gate. Huh? Deer in the head like, what are you talking about? System of lawlessness? Never heard such a thing. And what you'll find is that only the mature get this. Only the mature get this. Now, what's the point of all this? The point is, on the little scroll is the detail of how God is going to destroy these two satanic mysteries. How he's going to destroy Babylon, how he's going to destroy the Antichrist, and the lawless one. Now, here's what we, we do know. We already know revealed Scripture about somewhat of what he, how he does it. In the book of Revelation, he's going to do it through the bowl judgments. Because we're getting ready, he's sounding the seventh trumpet, which is going to release the seven bowl judgments. The seven bowl judgments are meant to destroy these two satanic mysteries. Now, we don't know all that's involved because the seven thunders are not permitted to talk. So that part is sealed. But what we do know is through a succession of the bold judgments, God will do away with the satanic program and the whore of Babylon. All that to say is, what's the point? Why? In order to usher in the sweetness, the kingdom age... God must deal with wickedness, evil, and sin first. You can't have the kingdom without dealing with the junk. And I know in Christendom today, the popular teaching is, we're going to usher in the kingdom without Jesus, and then Jesus is going to come back, and we're going to Christianize our culture and make it a, a paradise on earth. Guess what? They're going to join up with the communists. They're going to join up with the Marxists in their utopian society. You can't have a kingdom without Jesus. You can't have a kingdom because sin must be purged out of the planet. And that's what the bold judgments are for, is the purging aspect of that. I hope that makes sense. And it ends up with this statement in Revelation 15. The conclusion of this is this. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, and this is the declaration, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That statement is a declaration of this is what it will accomplish. Christ will set up his kingdom. But 
he must inflict pain first before the sweetness. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's go back to the text, and we'll wrap things up here. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went, and the angel said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. There's that bitter sweetness to this, right? Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. What's the point? Again, just to show you the little scroll, he's told to eat this. This is not unlike what Ezekiel had to do and Jeremiah. They were told to eat their prophecies. The bitter sweetness of that prophecy. Again, the bitter sweetness of the word of God, okay, of how he's going to destroy the satanic mysteries. It's bitter in the fact that God has to give pain out. It's sweet to the taste because of what it produces. That's the idea. That's called redemptive pain. Anytime you and I have pain in our life, we have to ask this. Is this a bittersweet situation? Can good come out of this? Can it be redeemed? And most of the time it can if you will cooperate with God's program. But primarily the message is being told to Israel. You have to understand this is survival manual for Israel. And why is he telling John this to tell Israel, Israel, what I'm about to do is going to be bittersweet. Do you know? I tell you. Prophecy indicates in order to break Israel of her power and to break Israel into accepting Messiah, which is sweet, the bitterness is that two-thirds of Israel will be killed through it by the Antichrist himself. He will kill them. If you thought the Holocaust was bad, you have no idea what the Antichrist will do to Israel. It is the Holocaust 10.0. It is off the chart what he does to them. He enslaves them just like Hitler did. He will just kill them, cut their heads off, do anything he can to eliminate every Jew on the planet. Why? Because the second coming is predicated on Israel accepting Messiah as Lord and Savior. If he can wipe out every Jew on the planet, then there's no pleading for the Messiah, and God can't make good on his promises to Israel, and he won't return. That's Satan's game. That's what he's trying to do through the system of lawlessness and through the system of the whore of Babylon. He's trying to prevent the second coming. And he's going to try to do it by wiping out Israel. Well, God is going to use that for Israel's purposes. Believe it or not, God will use Satan's plan to bring in the Antichrist to put Israel in such pain that she will finally wake up to her Messiah. Will God do anything he can at his disposal as sovereign as creator to wake people up? You better believe it. If someone goes into eternity and dies today and goes into into eternity without Christ, they are without excuse. God's going to say, I tried to get your attention when you were 12. I tried to get your attention when you were 21. I tried to get your attention over here. I put you through the ringer over here. I did this to you. Didn't you see me try to get your attention? That's what he's doing to Israel. And what God will do is continue to put more pressure and more pressure and more pressure on that individual. Can that individual resist? Absolutely. They have free will. But God keeps ramping it up, saying, I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to get your attention. And unfortunately, a lot of people, they don't want to ever want to come. 
Two-thirds of Israel won't come, but a third will. And so you might say, is it worth playing the game for the one-third? You better believe it is. He will do it and inflict pain to get the one-third out so that the kingdom can start with them and the Messiah. That's how the game is being played. That's how it's playing with us, by the way. Now, all that to say, what's some, point, some points of application? Because that's a lot, man. That's satanic mysteries and all this other stuff. Man, what are you, where are you going with this? Well, it's, it's simple. The application, whether it's the Word of God or a prophecy in the Scriptures, it's the Scriptures. You and I must see the Scriptures in their bitter sweetness. What do you mean? A lot of the people who read the Scriptures only look for the sweetness, but they don't look for the bitterness. And when the Scripture has both, they kind of just take the sweetness, but they leave the bitterness away. Because you know what the bitterness is? The bitterness is God saying, I want you to feel the pain so that you will change. So a lot of people read the Scriptures in only a sweetness way. It is sweet, right? Because if you go to certain churches, all they teach is sweet. There's no bitterness. There's no, ugh, that hurts. Ugh, I feel pain. If you're in a situation where all they teach is sweetness, there can never be the pain of change. And what God is trying to do through his scriptures, if we will ingest it, metabolize it by eating the scriptures, as he asked John, you eat it. And what does is, what is eating do? Why, why is it being used to eat? Because when you eat something, it metabolizes and it actually becomes you. It becomes part of your cells. That's what he's saying about the Scripture. I want you to eat it, metabolize it, so it becomes you. It's going to be painful because I'm going to make you change, but the pain, the pain of change is good because you're going to be more like my son. So that's the application in understanding that Scripture. But here's the deal. We have a problem. We don't like pain. It hurts. And a lot of times we spend our lives... Dealing and going through bad pain because we are avoiding the good pain, if that makes sense. Sounds like a tongue twister, but it's not, really. For instance, we feel the pain of being vulnerable or not trusting anybody. So instead of fixing that and, and trying to find out why do I feel vulnerable, why do I not trust people, Instead of fixing that and dealing with that pain and facing that pain, we choose the pain of isolation, the pain of withdrawing. And so the person sitting there, the Christian, I feel alone. And there's no doubt they feel pain. But you know what that pain of feeling alone is? Bad pain. It's bad pain because it's unredemptive. It won't do anything for you. The person just sits there with their tears, crying because they're so alone. But what is it? It's from them not dealing with good pain. Why do you not trust anyone? Well, I don't want to face the fact that I was burnt some, one day by, by somebody significant to me. And I don't want to have to face that anymore. I don't want to have to deal with that. So I'm just going to shove it down and bury it and then just withdraw from society. Bad pain is not redemptive. It's you avoiding the real issue. Or how about this? The fear of the pain of changing how I'm functioning in life because I'm used to the road signs signs in hell. What do you mean? 
A lot of people don't want to change, and they know they're living dysfunctionally spiritually, but it's familiar to them. And they don't want to leave the familiar. And they live in hell, so to speak. And they feel they experience that hellish place, so to speak. Their, their life is a nightmare. But they don't have the courage to face the real pain, to really deal with the issue of change and becoming more like Christ. Because they're avoiding that kind of pain. But they'd rather feel the hellish nightmare of living in hell. Yeah, they would, believe it or not. Or people going through grief. We're all going to suffer grief. Grief is like the number one issue, the number one pain people avoid. It is. It's up there. It's, there's nothing close to grief. There's no doubt you and I are going to lose a bunch of stuff in this life. A bunch of stuff. We're going to lose our health. We're going to lose our careers because of our health a lot of times. Or we have to retire. We're going to, we're going to lose family members because they go crazy or whatever, and we're going to lose people along the way that we love and and care for. And this whole life, if you only look at it from one perspective, you're going to be losing a lot. Well, that means you're going to be grieving a lot. But grief is the number one pain people avoid. They don't want to feel it. So you know what they do? They try to do other things that, quote-unquote, make them escape But when they do the other escape coping mechanisms, it causes them bad pain. Like the person that turns to alcohol to cope with his grief, the pain he's going to feel from the alcoholism is worse than the pain he's going to feel when he embraces grief or drugs or whatever, or whatever he's using to escape will cause him bad pain. And that pain, by the way, you drink yourself to death, you do drugs... There's no redemption in that. You don't get better. You don't, you're not suffering for Jesus when you're doing that. You only suffer like Jesus if you hit the pain dead on and grieve. Embrace the pain of grief so that you can get through it. I know it sounds weird, but that's what's happening. God wants you to experience good pain, redemptive pain. Not to avoid it, but do what you need to do to get over that pain that's in your life. Life is not about avoiding it. If you look in the scriptures, Proverbs twenty thirty says this, blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. What? He's saying good pain gets evil out of you, gets sin out of you the heart issue, the believing aspects. If we do that, that pain is good pain. It's redemptive pain. There's a resurrection out of that pain if we do that. And one more last thing, one more application. If you do embrace your pain, good for you. Just like John digested the bittersweetness, it will be bittersweet, but the sweetness is you'll be better for it. But you've got to do one more thing. Once you deal with your pain and you hit it straight on, you've got one more thing to do with it, and it's in the text. John wasn't finished on the island of Patmos. After he received the book of Revelation, he had another task for him to do. If you go back to the Scriptures. And he said to me, 
you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. You're not done yet. Because, John, when I get you off the island of Patmos and you see this, I need you to go back and tell the church this information. So I got one more task for you. You're going to get off the island of Patmos and you're going to go and tell everybody about this bitter sweetness of pain. You're going to tell everybody how to fix them with the, with the methods I want them to fix themselves with. That's our application. If you run from pain, you won't be able to help anybody. If you deal with your pain, deal with your junk, deal with all the emotional baggage, whatever it is, and you embrace your pain, guess what you have the ability to do? You have the ability to help other people get through their pain. And you have the credibility at that point saying, man, I know what you feel. I know what you're going through because I went through the same thing. But let me show you how God walked me through this. And what you end up doing, if you deal with your pain, you will have the ability to pay it forward. You can't pay it back, but you have to pay it forward. That's discipleship. I pray everybody in this room, whatever pain you're dealing with, deal with it and then pay it forward. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.